tonight's lecture is, as you can see, law and politics. And the question I've asked myself as I've been preparing it is, where do we draw the line, and is there a line, between the expression of political will and the expression of legal intent? And that brings you back to the concept of the sovereignty of parliament and division of responsibilities between effectively three limbs of our state. I'm going to go on to those in a moment, but in the course of delivering the lecture, what I want you to have in mind, please, is the different voices you will hear coming through the quotes I'm going to de deliver to you and the cases I cite. They are these voices. The voices of the press, the voices of the public, the voices of the politicians, and the voices of the judge. And as we go through this lecture in the course of the next 45 minutes, just keep those different angles in your head as I take you through um, this balancing exercise, which is what I've come to believe um, is uh, the purpose of this lecture. So when I talk about those different voices, let me throw some examples out at you so you know it's not just words, but it's real experience. So when I talk about the importance of the boundary between legal intent and political will, what do we make of a situation whereby, for example, the Home Secretary uh, delivers a letter to Shamima Begum, stripping her of her citizenship under the British Nationality Act before ascertaining that, in fact, she's got dual citizenship? What do we make of decisions made by the Supreme Court under Article 50? You remember the challenge mounted by Ms. Miller, which led to, first of all, the press outrage followed by political outrage, followed by judicial defence. What do we make about the position we're placing our lawmakers and our lawgivers in when we come to that conflict? And then what do we make of examples where, despite the fact that injunctions have been made and granted after legal representation, for example, super injunctions in various courts of this land, the High Court in particular, but then in Parliament, the object of them, who had gained the right to remain anonymous, is effectively outed by a politician under legal parliamentary privilege. So what does that say to you, just by those examples over the course of the last few years, about where the level of mutual respect is between the three different um, organs of our state? And where is the interface of politics and law between those matters? So let's have a think. What I'm going to do in this lecture is, first of all, I'm going to give you an overview about how judicial independence is underpinned by our constitution and law. Second part will be illustrating the boundaries between law and politics. My argument will be that there is a barrier. It's permeable, but it's respected, certainly by the judiciary. And then three, I'm going to ask you to consider with me whether the political responses, whether they're fueled by the reactions of the press or the public to judicial decisions, undermines the unwritten rule of mutual respect and the separation of powers. So that's the structure. Um, let's deal with stage one. The Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, its key underpinning principles. Now there's a heading really to get you going on this lecture, isn't it? But let's put it into context. Separation of powers means the division between the legislature, which is parliament, the judiciary, speaks for itself, and then the executive, which is government. So there you have it. Parliament, judiciary, executive. Core component that is going to be the lodestone of this lecture is judicial independence. And why was the Constitutional Reform Act important in that regard? 
Well, first of all, after this act, appointments of judges were, is made by effectively a body called the Judicial Appointments Committee, no longer by the Lord Chancellor. That's important for reasons I will explain in a moment. Judgments uh, should be free from political pressure. We don't have a system here in the United Kingdom, as we do in America, whereby judges are appointed because of their political affiliation and beliefs, and their judgments follow, in the main, those political beliefs that they were espousing, and therefore they were appointed for. Location, after the uh, Constitutional Reform Act, literally and physically, the business of the Supreme Court was taken away from the House of Lords where it had previously been. We have apolitical judges, they're not appointed for their politics for reasons I've said. The intention is the reverse. They should be apolitical. And in particular, the head of judiciary no longer has a cabinet um, seat in the cabinet or the Lords. Now, why is that important? Little history lesson. For any of you that were around before 2005, you may not remember an environment in which the head of the judiciary was the Lord Chancellor. The Lord Chancellor was a judge. The Lord Chancellor sat both in cabinet he was Speaker in the House of Lords, and that was effectively giving the head of the judiciary a foot in the door, and in this case, a very vocal voice that went with it, both in terms of government and in terms of the construction of law as well as the delivery of it and the interpretation of it. And that Lord Chancellor was the head of the judiciary and therefore had a significant role in the appointment of judges. Just by that link up there, can you see how, with that overlap in the Lord Chancellor's role, there was every ability and facility for there to be an overlap and a blurring of the division of powers between legislature, the judiciary, and the executive. And that was why the Constitutional Reform Act was such a significant act, because it took those divisions away. The Lord Chancellor now is someone that doesn't need to have legal experience. You may have gathered that through some of the appointees in the recent past. Just saying. They don't have a role in appointing judges, and um, there can be a tension between the remaining role that the Lord Chancellor has under Section 3.1, which is to uphold the independence of the judiciary, and the skill or the uh, willingness of them to do so when it clashes with political will, because they are essentially a politician. So the Constitutional Reform Act was a massive act in terms of reframing the way the business of the judiciary was organised. Think this in mind as we go through. Why is it important in order to have that separation? Nolan quotes, um, one of many in the handout, but one I think that encapsulates it better than I can express, which is the proper constitutional relationship of the executive with the courts is that the court will respect all acts of the executive within its lawful province, and the executive will respect all decisions of the court as to what its lawful province is. Bring it down to basics, what that means is the judges won't seek to overstep, to um, undermine the will of Parliament through the legislation it passes, and the parliamentarians and the government will not seek to undermine the judges in the exercise of their legal authority in interpreting the legislation. Let's see how that works in practice. How the judiciary respects the boundaries, three case studies. Do you like the symmetry here? I've got three aspects. Number one, the structure. Number two, the cases. Number three, the argument. Okay, well, we're carrying that on in this middle section. So three cases to illustrate the point. In the handout, there are many more. I could have included so many. But once you start embracing this topic, you get sucked into this um, 
Alice in Wonderland world, where each case and each judgment within it becomes more interesting the more you start to delve into the particular um, viewpoints of the Supreme Court lords and um, ladies. And it was important for me not to do anything to blur the single message of this lecture. But the lecture, the cases I'm taking you to, they are worth reading, not because of the decisions they come to, although that's worthwhile in itself, but because of the language, the degree of care, the articulation, the humanity, as well as the intelligence that comes through in the judgments they hand down. It is a humbling experience, frankly, to read them. But you've got me instead of them, so I'll just plough on. So let me tell you, please, about one particular case which illustrates why and how we need judges of this calibre to assist us in navigating the boundary between what the uh, intention of the legislation was and how it's interpreted by the judges who have the responsibility to make it um, applied to the cases in front of them. And this is Tony Bland. Tony Bland, born 21st of September uh, 1970, died 3rd of March 1993, aged 22. He was one of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster. In the lecture notes, I've taken the time um, to introduce you to Tony and his life through introducing his personal statement that his father gave at the Hillsborough inquests. Because in giving this lecture and identifying this case, I was determined that Tony would not be a name or a number because he deserved more in his life, as do his family, by respecting his memory. Tony's case, however, came to public attention in this way. Tony had been one of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster. Effectively, his lungs had been punctured, his brain had been starved of oxygen, and he was, as a consequence, rendered into what's called a persistent vegetative state. It is why, when we come to the numbers, um, of deaths. He wasn't counted because, in fact, he lived under this state of suspended physical animation when others around him had died um, previously. Tony's case was a deeply distressing one because for his family, they had lost the soul and the personality of the boy they loved and were left instead with someone who no longer resembled the boy they thought he had the potential to be. And they, together with the doctors, wanted to withdraw treatment from him because they could not see the boy they loved being in that condition. But my question was, was that permissible? Was that a permissible act by the doctors to withdraw life-saving treatment from him, which was effectively nutrition, in order, as a consequence of which his life would end? Or was that causing him to die? Was that the inevitable consequence? And if so, was that murder? And I don't throw that word around lightly. That was what the uh, Supreme Court, the House of Lords as it was then, was deciding. Let me just put it in context, in terms of the clarity of decisions that this um, Supreme Court had to come to. When you talk about the significance of legal decisions, and you look, for example, at the head note, how many of you consider that the decisions of law actually involve serious moral, medical and ethical issues, as well as the application of the law itself? This case, as much as any other, and the next one I will come to, illustrates how the law laws have to grapple with all of those aspects of the legal decision they are being asked to make. Why is it important? Just read this, and I will read it out to you about what the law lords and ladies understood they were grappling with. This comes from Lord Hoffman. 
he was giving a decision in the Court of Appeal. Whilst Tony's body was alive, in the sense that the heart continued to beat and his body was alive with medical aid, nonetheless, the parts of his brain which provided him with consciousness have turned to fluid. The darkness and oblivion which descended at Hillsborough will never depart. His body is alive, but he has no life, in the sense that even the most pitifully handicapped but conscious human being has a life but the advances of modern medicine permit him to be kept in this state for years, even perhaps for decades. What more profound decision could you ask a judge to make than to decide whether or not the law of the land at the time, created before all of these medical advances, enabled the doctors to, decide to do what they wished to do, which was to withdraw sustenance from him? This is how they had to encapsulate the task they were being required to do. To actively assist someone to die, assisted suicide, is unlawful, was unlawful. Withdrawal of treatment was, however, properly to be characterised as an omission. All right, so not an act, an omission. An omission to act would nonetheless be illegal if there was a duty to act. But there was no duty to treat if the treatment was not in the best interest of the patient. Because there was no prospects of the treatment, um, leading to an improvement in Tony's condition, treatment was futile. Therefore, it was held there was no interest for Tony in continuing the process of artificially feeding him. Six steps which led to the decision that the doctors were permitted to withdraw treatment from him. They could not do more because the act didn't enable them to do so. But just looking at that stark answer without taking into account the complexity between, behind each of those stages, and remembering that quote from Lord Hoffman alone, let alone Lady Hale in the, in the House of Lords, should not take away from you anything from the impression of this case, but that every one of those judges was considering Tony's case as an individual with all of the ramifications of the decision they were making. So when we look at that type of life or death decision, where the court makes a decision based on the law as it is, even though there may have been an option to do something greater, which was, do we need to decide if an omission is as important as an act? Because the law of the land says that you can't have effectively assisted suicide, they looked at what effectively the withdrawal or treatment would be. So let's see whether or not the next case, some 20 years on, also dealing with life and death, what that had to say to us about the way in which um, judges regulate their activities. Now, I didn't read this out, and I will, because, in fact, it's a linking message between one and the other. Lord Brown Wilkinson, so I've told you about um, Lord Hoffman. Behind the question of law lie moral, ethical, medical, and practical issues of fundamental importance to society. The law regulating the termination of artificial life support being given to patients must be, to be acceptable, reflect the moral attitude which society accepts, this has led judges to the consideration of the ethical and other non-legal problems raised by the ability to sustain life artificially, which new medical technology has made possible. Better words than I've used, worth repeating, I think, to underline the point. So the next case, Nicholson, Ministry of Justice, 2014. The argument that I'm raising through these cases is that there is a border between the application of the law that's handed down by, by um, Parliament and the interpretation of it by the judiciary. 
but the barrier between expanding the law and applying it is one that is well known to and respected by the judges who are very conscious of the limitations of their powers and where their role ends and Parliament begins. So what are the circumstances of this? You can see there we have three applicants suffering from catastrophic physical disabilities, but their mental processes were unimpaired and they wanted to die, but they couldn't by their own hand for the reasons we've just gone through, but encapsulated by the Suicide Act of 1961, Section 2. So how much has changed since Tony Bland's case was there? 20 years on, as I say. The interesting part about this is that the nine-judge court disagreed about whether it would be appropriate to, enhance, to exercise a power to declare Section 2 incompatible with European rights. Four of the justices thought this was a moral question, which should be led to Parliament. Five of the Supreme Court thought the court did have constitutional authority to declare the law incompatible with the Convention rights to respect for private life, which included the right to choose the time and manner of their passing. But only two of those five would have made such a declaration, there and then. Now, without going into the complexity of the decisions themselves, what that illustrates to me is that when a judge of that calibre is looking about what the law permits and what it cannot assist them to do, and when they are deciding whether to make a declaration of incompatibility, they are hugely conscious of the barrier between that which they can do as judges and that which Parliament needs to do by passing legislation. But where they draw the line about what is permissible for them to say or do and decide is as individual as the judges are. Because into that decision, they bring the whole of their analysis, their understanding, their background, their interpretation... An interpretation of the law is, I believe, an art, not a science, which is precisely why nine judges of that level of calibre applying the same facts to the same law came to such differing conclusions. And it begs the question, doesn't it, which is what does the constitution of the Supreme Court matter and mean when it comes to deciding the cases in front of them? What if we've got lots of Hoffmans or Hales as opposed to anyone else? And that's an important point to remember when you're considering how we interpret law because we cannot pretend it's done in some type of academic, abstract environment because judges have to apply the whole of their experience that they've acquired over the course of their life and their professional um, uh, career in order to interpret the cases that are placed before them. So how did this express, uh, the difference express itself? Lord Dyson expressed the majority view about recognising the border between their responsibility and that of Parliament's. The courts have to concede a very wide margin of judgment to Parliament in a controversial area, raising difficult moral and ethical issues, such as assisted suicide, and the current, current law cannot conceivably be said to stray from it. Even where a case falls within the margin of appreciation, the courts, the judiciary, must adopt a very light touch, particularly when dealing with primary legislation. So effectively, he was saying was, even if there might be an argument that we could intervene here, in fact, because it's such a moral question, because there is no agreed public view or political view upon it, it would be wrong for us to trespass into that area. So therefore, we are going to leave that to Parliament to deal with. That shows, does it not that there is understanding where even where there might be the capacity to make a declaration of incompatibility, 
which possibly extends the, the direction, the consideration of the law into a different um, arena because it has, it's up to Parliament then to decide what to do. Do they um, adopt legislation to deal with the incompatibility? Do they ignore the indication? Or do they, well, the options are manifold. But at least in that way, it's passing the decision back to Parliament to do. But this shows, does it not, how although different judges may come to the decision about where the line is between intervention or not, they do so understanding there is a line to be drawn, but they may come to it from different perspectives. Let's take you on to the next case. A and others against Home Secretary, 2004, used to be known colloquially as the Belmarsh case. Again, um, the argument to be drawn from this, I think, is that the variety in the judgments that the law lords and law ladies came to was a result of the excess of care, a diligence of care about the application of the law to the case before them and where their responsibilities began and that of Parliament um, ended and vice versa, rather than simply assuming that they, once seized of a case, could determine what they believe to be right, recognising that as judges that's out with their area. So what are the facts of this case? Following 9-11, the UK had derogated from its obligations under Article 5.1 of the EH, um, ECHR, which is effectively the right to liberty and security, by detaining, without charge or trial, foreign nationals for whom deportation wasn't a possibility. So effectively incarcerating uh, people without the right or remedy to have a trial or determination of their guilt or innocence. And they did so only by virtue of the fact that they had made advantage of their powers under Article 15, which was conditional upon declaring a public emergency, i.e. a threat to the life of the nation. It is difficult to conceive, is it not, something more political than deciding that we have a threat to the life of the nation and using that declaration to... Um, to remove your obligations that otherwise exist in terms of our Article 6 rights to a fair trial for those of us who are citizens of the United Kingdom. The court held as a majority that it had not been shown that the Commission had misdirected itself in law on the issue as to whether there was an emergency, and the decision was open to it on the evidence. Great weight should be given to the judgment of the government and parliament on that issue because they were called on to exercise a preeminently political judgment. So the court would be entitled to conclude that there was a public emergency, but that they held, nonetheless, the consequence of that decision was that the prisoner's detention was incompatible with the Human Rights Act 1998, Section 4. They made a declaration of incompatibility, and that passed the ball very much back into Parliament's court. A conflict of two terms there. But what Parliament did was they then passed the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which made legal effectively that which was otherwise incompatible under HRA law. So compare and contrast these two approaches. Lord Hope, whether there is an emergency and whether it threatens the life of the nation are preeminently matters for the executive or for Parliament. Point one. Compare and contrast the view of Lord Hoffman dissenting. The test that there was a threat to the life of the nation was not made out, he decided. Now, the point there is he made a decision that what he was being told was the factual premise 
upon which the state of emergency had been declared was not one which was properly made out. So he was very clearly saying that we are in a situation where the basic premise upon which the, um, the prisoners' Article 6 rights had been removed was not one justified by the declaration of the, of the state of emergency and hence the derogation. So what he said was, there's no evidence of a threat that existed which threatened the life of the nation. Um, I do not underestimate the ability of fanatical groups of terrorists to kill and destroy, but they do not threaten the life of the nation. Whether we would survive Hitler hung in the balance, but there is no doubt that we shall survive Al-Qaeda. The Spanish have not said what, what happened in Madrid, hideous crime as it was, threatened the life of their nation. Their legendary pride would not allow it. Terrorist violence, serious as it is, does not threaten our institutions of government or our existence as a civil community. The real threat to the life of the nation, in the sense of a people living in accordance with its traditional laws and political values, comes not from terrorism, but from laws such as these. Now, that's a dense sentence, and it's a powerful expression. So let me just decode it in my terms, bearing in mind that what I think of it may be different from yours. What he was saying is that it's not the terrorist act which threatens our nation. It's the inappropriate use of political decisions that threaten our rights as a citizen, that threaten our constitution. He was not ignoring a political will and intent and saying that that enabled him to blur the boundary between the role of a politician and his role as a judge. What he was saying is my role as a judge is to make sure that political decisions did not trample on legal constitutional rights. He was holding up an independent hand of halt to the mindset of the politicians who had, in his judgment, exercised their um, decision-making process um, inappropriately. So compare and contrast, as I say, those decisions made by two equally eminent uh, laws of the Supreme Court and think about how they arrived at them. And bear in mind that the similarity between them, even though their conclusions were different, is that they both understood that there was a boundary to be drawn between the will of Parliament and the ability of the judges to interpret legislation handed down and to decide whether the exercise of it was in accordance with the intention of the legislation itself. But they were not saying there was no boundary at all. That's a dense subject, a really difficult issue to grasp, but that's what is at the heart of the separation of powers that we um, aspire to have how judiciary and the politicians uphold. So, stage three. How do politicians and judges and the press interpret that separation of powers? So, the unwritten rules. When I was talking to you before about the separation of powers, I was talking to you about the, the way in which the judiciary is constructed. I didn't mention the expectation there would be on those who are the other limbs, um, both in terms of parliament and government, to respect the independence of the judiciary. One of the unwritten rules is that Parliament, government, will not criticise judges when they make decisions in the exercise of their judicial powers. So what do we make of this? Cast your mind back to a point when Theresa May wasn't our Prime Minister and when our Lord Chancellor was um, Chris Grayling. Joy of joys. <laughs> a marvellous combination. 
What had happened was that uh, May, then Home Secretary, had say, said that the failure of judges to take new rules into account meant that she would bring new laws in to stop, quote, foreign rapists and violent criminals being able to stay in Britain by claiming a right to a family life. In making that statement, she'd gone further than simply making a political statement of intent. She had positively criticised the judges who were applying the very law that Parliament had passed and handed over to them to apply. What happened as a result is that Lord Neuberger had to respond, then President of the Supreme Court, because saying thus, that May's strongly worded criticism of immigration judges was inappropriate, unhelpful and wrong, and continued, I'm concerned about it because I think it's inappropriate and unhelpful for ministers to attack individual judges or groups of judges. The Home Office declined to comment on Lord Neuberger's judgments. Now, where in this exchange was there, you might ask, the voice of Chris Graylin, the Lord Chancellor, who, by virtue of Section 3.1 of the Constitutional Reform Act, must uphold the independence of the judiciary. It's not a may, might do, if the wind's in the right direction. It's a must, will do. And yet there was a singular silence, which is why Lord Neuberger then had to intervene in order to remind those who care to listen that what judges do is apply the law handed to them for, by the legislature in order to give effect to the decision of the will of the people as deemed through government being um, the elected parliament and acting. So what does that take us? Was that a one-off? Um, the answer has to be no. Think about the Miller case that I've just um, referred you to. Think about the degree of venom, anxiety, distress, disarray, discontent that that whole process produced um, in both the press, the public, the politicians, and as we then know, all of those problems landed at the door of uh, the Court of Appeal, High Court, and then the Supreme Court. Let's remind ourselves about what it was. Um, in the majority decision of the majority of the Supreme Court, um, they held that the Act of Parliament was required to authorise ministers to give notice to the decision of the United Kingdom to withdraw from the European Union. Do you remember that much? Right. They said the 2016 referendum was of great political significance. However, its legal significance, and Paul there to, to look at the two words, there's a political significance and then there's a legal significance. And just in those two sentences, you can see exactly what the majority were contemplating. So whilst the referendum was of huge political significance, its legal significance is determined by what Parliament included in the statute authorising it. And the statute simply provided for the referendum to be held without specifying the consequences. The change in the law required to implement the referendum's outcome must be made in the only way permitted by the UK Constitution, namely by legislation. So Parliament, government, created the legislation to enable the referendum to happen, but they didn't anticipate the consequences of the outcome. And in that absence of a decision, the court had to make a decision about what was or wasn't permissible. And since the legislation had not said that the referendum was itself determinative of an act which was as significant as withdrawing, there needed to be new legislation that dealt with that consequence if that was what required. And this is why. Withdrawal makes a fundamental change to the UK's constitutional arrangements by cutting off the source of EU law. 
Such a fundamental change will be the inevitable effect of a notice being served. The UK Constitution requires such changes to be affected by parliamentary legislation. Now, if you look at that decision, and if you read the judgments were given, that is nothing but expressing the absolute supremacy of Parliament through legislation to decide the consequences of what the referendum was there to decide. It is not taking the decision away from the people. It is not taking the decision away from Parliament. That much those judgments make clear. So let's look to see how that was interpreted. First of all, the press. The judges versus the people. Was it a one-off? You'll see when you get to my lecture that just if you got cut off there, which is really not intentional in my view whatsoever, there's an article by Nigel Farage with the heading saying, voters aren't going to let this incredible arrogance lie. So that's the Daily Telegraph. Then got the Sun. Who do you think you are? And then we've got the Daily Mail, enemies of the people. And if you just want to be left in no doubt about where the angle of the sun is going, you can see underneath there that we've got sunning lefties being you know, effectively enemies of the state, and then uh, that links in nicely with the en enemies of the people. So that was the press reaction, some of the press reaction, not by any means all. What would you expect when that happened? Given that we have politicians, given that we have a Lord Chancellor, who are there to make sure that there's a fair balance, effectively, between opposing limbs of the public and the press on what is clearly a very divided issue. Would you have expected this? Savid Javid. This was an attempt to frustrate the will of the British people and is unacceptable. Bearing in mind that's also the same person that's just issued the letter to Samima Begum without taking legal advice. What was noticeable by way of a silence was the absence of comment by the Lord Chancellor Liz Truss. Eventually, after much outcry, including representations by the Bar Council and other members of the responsible press and politicians, she issued a three-line press release that, whilst backing the independence of the judiciary, stopped short of condemning the professional and personal attacks on the senior judges over the Brexit rulings. So you have the press, you have the politicians, you have the Lord Chancellor. Remember that, that section I gave you, duty is must uphold the independence of the judiciary. And so we have this as a result. It is left to Lord Thomas here to provide a response, which he did in a dignified way through the Laws Constitution Committee, 22nd of March 2017. Now, the critical phrase there, why you read it in all, is that, as he points out, I believe that people ought to criticise us. Criticism is very healthy. If you've got something wrong, fine, but there's a difference between criticism and abuse which I do not think is understood. It is not understood how absolutely essential it is that we are protected because we have to act as our oath requires us without fear or favour, affection or ill will. The only time in the whole of my judicial career in which I've had to ask for police to give us measures of advice and protection is effectively in this case. It is very wrong that judges will feel it. I've done it in a number of other cases, including airline bombings. I've never had that problem before. And that is why, at the beginning of this quote, he was saying, I believe the Lord Chancellor was completely and utterly wrong in the view that she expressed, or rather that which she didn't say because judges can't enter the political fray 
by justifying the decisions they come to because that's not their role to engage with the press. And that's precisely why you need the Lord Chancellor to be the person who upholds their, their capacity to have an independent voice and, moreover, to understand the basis on which we've come to their decisions, which was signally absent in this case. So what does that example tell us? You've had two there. You've had Neuberger um, intervening when May criticised um, judges in court. You've got this issue here where you've got Lord Thomas responding to press and political criticisms of the judges involved. What's that say about the unwritten role, rule of mutual respect? What does it say about the understanding that there will be respect for the autonomy of each of the functions that we have? What it says to me and in all my comment here, as it is in all of my lectures and my notes, and it's a personal one, is it shows to me that there is an attempt by the judiciary through the Supreme Court to try to remind the other limbs of the way in which we function that they are trying to maintain that boundary, that recognition that there are rules and things that they can do, lines about which they won't trespass over but that in respecting the limits of their role, they need to be given the respect by the other agencies, the politicians, the press, to recognise that what they're doing is very much in accordance with the oath that they've taken and the duty they have, rather than trespassing on the political and press will. What of a political act that directly undermines and legitimately arrived at court order? So do you remember this? You've got the Me Too scandal. Um, which then made its way to Sir Philip Green, then unnamed, there was effectively a gagging order granted to him. And then Lord Hayne used parliamentary privilege to name him. Now, bear in mind, whatever we may or may not think about Sir Philip Green, the law which enabled him to obtain a gagging order was a result of laws that had been passed by Parliament. So what was happening here was the par Parliament was itself breaching the very basis of the rules through the legislation they had handed down and effectively criticising the courts replying their legislation. What's a court to do in that situation? Should they trespass outside the legislation they've been given to interpret and saying, well, actually, we've read the evidence. We think it, we're not happy with the decision we're being required to make. We'd like to have his name plastered over every single news board. And therefore, because we think he might be guilty, because we think the public have a right to know, we just name him and we'll ignore the legislation. What would have happened in that instance? That would have been precisely the fact that the judges were making a value decision about the quality of the case in front of them and putting their personal views about whether or not that person should be named ahead of the legal structure that enabled them to decide whether an injunction was or wasn't right to be granted. And the injunction was granted after hearing legal representations from all sides. So why, why is it in that scenario that the judges who applied the very law handed down by Parliament should be criticised for so doing? Wouldn't there be worthy of greater criticism if they hadn't, in fact, had done what they were legally obliged to do, which was to apply the legislation as handed down to them? Was that the only time? No. Um, 2011, you might remember there was an expose of Sir Fred Goodwin under parliamentary privilege. We've got the Lord Chief Justice then intervening to say, you need to think, do you not, whether it's a very good idea for our lawmakers to be flouting a court order just because they disagree with the court order, or for that matter, because they disagree with the law of privacy that Parliament has created. Because effectively that way, anarchy lies, because then it really is down, isn't it, to the individual decision of the politician 
or the individual decision of a judge to decide what to do on the instant case in front of them. And the one thing that law gives us through the legislation we are handed down to apply is a rule book to follow for all classes of applicants and respondents that come before the courts. Like I say, the judicial oath is to do right by all manner of men and women without uh, favour, fear or consequences to themselves. So does the convention precluding criticism of government ministers still exist? Well, I think the answer's got to be no, no and no. What of, however, extrajudicial pronouncements that call into question the nature and impact of government legislation? What do we do then? So this is trying to get you to look at the situation from the other angle. What about when judges, outside of the court hearing over which they're adjudicating, express views about the legislation which might be deemed to be political? So let's have an example in point. Baroness Hale, Equal Access to Justice in the Big Society was the title of the lecture she gave, describing the government's proposed legal aid reforms as fundamentally misconceived, describing other aspects of it as a false economy. Now, they are views, as any of you who have listened to my lectures before, know I espouse and will repeat at every opportunity because I think it's fundamental to the rights of our society that those who are in need legal aid in order to properly argue a case are entitled to access to it. And the destruction to the legal aid system caused by the reforms has meant that there is a vast number of people who need to have access to housing, immigration, and family advice are no longer able to get it, and that is swamping the court system. So that's my assertion. I'm able to make that because I'm not a supreme judge, as is entirely obvious from the lectures I am given. But that is Lady Hale giving a view on legislation. Was she entitled to do that? Where did that cross the border between what's permissible and what's not? Now, luckily, I don't have to give you the answer to that, so I'm going to give you Lord Neuberger's instead because he knows about these things with a far greater degree of skill and um, a history of lexicon of knowledge to call upon than I do. And he said this. It seems to me that, though, whilst it may have been brave... Now, I think that's probably the point at which to, to pause. I wonder how carefully crafted this particular statement was. Seems to me, though it may have been brave, it was not impermissible for Baroness Hale to make the point she did. Judges can properly comment publicly on matters which go to the heart of the functioning of the judicial branch of the state. In some circumstances, it could be said to be their duty to do so. I think the stings entail here. In the past, it would have been easier for them to do so whilst donning their legislative hats in the House of Lords of either Lord Chancellor, but those days are gone. So where does that leave us? Well, Lord Neuberger, again, was looking effectively to see what the scope of the 2005 changes had been brought about in a lecture he gave in 2012. And he said this, against this change background by which I'm going to extrapolate, it may not be his intention, but I'm going to extrapolate that the type of decisions the judiciary are being asked to make now, the type of decisions which so divide our society, which cannot be described as united in very many ways. The type of politicians and the type of amalgamation of policies they've had to construct means that it's a very hard task to be a judge of the Supreme Court in trying to manage that balance between public debate and uh, public deliberation. So against that changed background, to what extent... Can judges contribute to the public debate without damaging judicial independence? 
and he says this, like any important right, it should, of course, be exercised with due care whilst fully accepting that by entering into the policy debate with government, government can properly answer back, and in such a debate, it's always Parliament which has the final word. And that is what we need to remember is ultimately the sanction for um, the way in which we argue about the decisions of the judges, the way in which it's affected by political opinion or not, and how they should be interpreted. If there is ever going to be a war of wards or interpretation between the judiciary and Parliament, the sovereignty of Parliament will always win because they always have the ability to change the law by passing legislation, which is not something a judge can do. So it's not something, effectively, that means that there's declared war by one branch, the judiciary against the politicals or the political politicians against the judiciary. We operate in an environment where our constitution, unwritten as it is, gives the sovereignty to Parliament to pass the legislation that it deems to be in the public interest. So where does this leave judicial independence and the separation of powers? Now, this is dense, but it's so beautifully written that I wanted it up there on the screen, so I'm going to read it out to you. Sumpton, QC, he is now in the Supreme Court. The last two decades in particular have seen major changes in the tones and principles of major parties. In this way, modern political parties have proved to be an effective means of mediating between those in power and the public from which they derive their legitimacy. They are essentially instruments of compromise between a sufficiently wide range of opinion to enable a programme to be laid before the electorate with some prospect of being accepted. Now, that must make sense, mustn't it? When, you, when, when we complain that with manifestos by various competing politicians, you look at them as statement of principles, but they don't seem to have the detail to demonstrate how they're going to deliver it. There's a reason behind that opaqueness. And it's because you don't want to trespass too much into detail because then you'll be accountable to it. And in fact, you need to decide how many of them you can actually deliver as opposed to promising. And that is one of the unwritten rules between us, the public, and the politicians. How far can they go to tempt our vote without then having to deliver on the basis upon which um, we have promised it to them? Next paragraph. I love this paragraph. Political decision-making is often characterised by a measure of opacity, fudge, or even irrationality. Who would have thought that? This is not because politicians are intellectually dishonest, but because opacity, fudge, and irrationality are often valuable tools of compromise, enabling divergent views and interests to be accommodated. The result may be intellectually impure, but on the whole, it's in the public interest. That was in 2011. You might want to consider what's happening in Parliament now, and I'll leave you with your own thoughts about how that particular fudge, deal-breaking, deal-making and um, characterisation of what's being done is being presented to us as the public. But let's carry on. By comparison, law, with its transparency, its analytical consistency, its absoluteness, is a poor instrument for achieving accommodation between the opposing interests and sentiments of the population at large. Now, given that in Sumpton we have one of the most energetic judges in the Supreme Court... Given that when decisions need to be made which are challenging some of the very borders between what Parliament needs and decided and wanted to happen through the legislation that's handed down and how that should be interpreted by grappling with the social, moral, ethical, political and legal decisions that are the consequence of the legislation. Nonetheless, 
even Lord Sumpton understands that there is a role and a, a division between the responsibility of the courts and the responsibility of legislation to decide where we draw the line in those big decisions that are important to us as matters of the public. So where does that take us in terms of understanding the respect for the division of powers? I believe, through my research and through the approach I take to this matter, that the judiciary is very cognizant of the fact that there is a division of power between themselves and the politicians as expressed through the legislation passed by government. I believe that they are fully conscious that there are limits to what they can do. And when we see them acknowledging that barrier, we see them coming to different decisions, not because they say we'll throw that out and we we'll simply decide what we need to do, but because they are applying their mind with intellectual rigour to the particular task in hand, applying the legislation in all of its forms to the decision they have to make. But the reason they are appointed for their independence as well as their intelligence is that they come to that answer, having applied the same law to the same facts, from different perspectives, but always understanding there is a limit to what they can possibly achieve and do. As I say, I think it's, a, it's an art, not a science. But what about politicians and the press? What do we think they have to say about respect for what the judiciary does or the respect for the separation of powers? On that, as I say here, I think the jury is very much out. But when it comes to deciding what we are doing in our democracy and in our country now, when Brexit has, I believe, effectively made the process of government the poor relation, whilst we focus on a big issue that is otherwise paralysing itself, then I would rather, I have to say, if I had a big political decision to make, go to a politician, yes. If I had a legal decision to make, which required a court of independent, intellectually agile, transparently trained to deliver their judgments in a way that can be understood, if I needed to have anyone make a decision about something that was important to me, I'd rather have a judge make it, know why they make it, know upon what basis they decided to come to their conclusion, than I would, frankly, to have any politician. So that's a personal end to what I think is quite a complex subject. Um, I hope that you have been taken through the analysis of it. As always, the lecture notes are far more dense, um, referenced with many more cases than I have the time to take you through today. But in essence, um, in terms of the separation of the powers, yes, we have them. Yes, they're respected, at least by the judiciary. And I think it's our responsibility to make sure the press, the public and the politicians also uphold that division. So thank you very much.